Welcome to State of the 38th. I'm your host, Alex Weissman, here with Audrey Wheeler from Conservation Colorado. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. So why don't you explain to our listeners that haven't heard of Conservation Colorado what it is that you guys do? So Conservation Colorado is Colorado's biggest environmental advocacy organization. We work on issues including clean energy and climate change, promoting healthy rivers and clean water, and protecting our state's public lands. We've got about 35 employees in Denver and in offices across the state, including Grand Junction, Durango, and Craig. And we work to influence policy on the state level by working with decision makers and legislators to try to make changes, and then also by working with grassroots and people across the state to influence that policy and talk to their legislators and connect more um, and really trying to get that education piece and show people what's happening with environmental policy and how they can make an impact. Awesome. So what do you think are the biggest challenges that Colorado is facing in terms of environmental policy today? Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) So we, I don't even know where to start with that one. Um, If you could change one thing. Yeah. Okay. We work on a lot of stuff. I'll start with energy and climate change. Basically, well, let me back up. Sorry, I'm stuttering a lot. That's fine. No, no. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> uh, so right now, on the state level, we have in the state house a pro-conservation majority. So there's, uh, I think, like a six-vote majority of people that tend to vote in favor of conservation issues, and then in the state senate we've got one seat of an anti-conservation majority. So anything that we try to pass through the state level, it's kind of challenging to get it through that because it has to have bipartisan support. It has to appeal to all parts of Colorado. Um, Getting things to change on the state level really takes a lot of collaboration and working with different stakeholders and partners and making things happen. So right now, some of the things that we're working on, um, for example, clean energy and climate change, we're trying to promote more clean energy, get the state, help the state be a leader um, in the nation for clean energy, for solar and wind companies. We want more people to be able to come to this state to do those things. We're trying, uh, last year we helped get in place a policy that has a tax credit for people who buy electric vehicles. So this year we're trying to work, now it's uh, Colorado's like the best state in the nation to buy an electric vehicle. So now we're trying to work to make it the best state to drive one by allowing utility companies to build charging stations and kind of create a network of charging stations for people to be able to drive electric vehicles better. So that's like one example of something that we're working to change. But with that and with everything that we work on, there's always this kind of push and pull effect of us trying to push more and more um, conservation-minded policies and then also trying to work with people across the state to make sure that these policies really are the best thing for our state to move forward and that we're not inhibiting industry or anything, but we're really working with all the different partners and making change happen. So why don't you describe a little bit more what that Mm -hmm. process of talking to state legislators and talking to grassroots people entails? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we've got a whole team of, I'll start with the organizers. They, we have, I don't know how many, like 15 maybe, (laughs) organizers around the state who their whole job is just to talk to different people in whatever community they are in and help get those people to understand policies that we're working on and to 
help contact their legislators or councilmen or uh, commissioners or whatever, whoever it is, um, decision makers to try to influence change. So that's happening on a really broad scale right now for the national level. Um, I'm sure you've heard, but there's a lot of people right now that are calling their congressmen every day to try to, you know, urge health care or stop the um, defunding of Planned Parenthood or whatever it is. People are really getting into things on the national level. But what we try to do is get is get that energy pointed towards state level issues. So for example, um, let's see, right now we're working on a big transportation bill that would increase, that would cause a small tax increase to put a bunch of money towards our roads, our transportation infrastructure, and local communities to build better transportation. So we're working on that bill because we really want it to have a portion of that funding go towards um, public transit and bikes and pedestrians, that kind of thing. So we're trying to make sure that that's in the final version of the bill. And we're getting up, so we've got all of our organizers around the state who are working with the communities they're in to tell them about this policy and inform them of what's going on at the state level, and then also help them get involved. So say, you know, oh, if you're interested in this, you can call your state senator and tell them how you feel about it. Or sometimes we um, do online actions. We have our, we have over 26,000 online uh, or not just online, 26,000 members, um, and we have, you know, a big email list with all those people, so we can email action alerts to everyone, and when it's something really important, we'll send out a message to everyone saying, quick, you know, tell your representative or your congressperson or whatever that they need to do this on a certain bill, and then, you know, with a couple clicks, they can send a message right to their congressperson or their state legislator or whoever, and kind of have that, have their voice be part of what's happening, um, and make a Make, have an influence on policy in that way. How receptive are state legislators to mm -hmm. constituents reaching out to them? That's kind of the awesome thing, is that it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, a lot of people can't even really name their state legislator. So once pe when state legislators actually do get, you know, 20 calls to their office saying, hey, you should really vote this way on a bill, they'll notice. And they're often really surprised or really grateful that people have actually raised their voices and talked about, told, talked to them about something that's important. Um, same with through social media or through email. Whenever they do get a pretty big response to something, they pay attention if it's from their constituents. So what role do you see states playing in the fight against climate change and for environmental regulation? Yeah, it's going to have to be on the states pretty much. <laughs> um, in the past couple months of this current presidential administration, I think it's become really clear that our president does not want to act on climate change and that he's going to try to undo really key environmental protections across the country. So it's really up to the states to lead in that department. It's the only option we have, I think. And, you know, if enough states do something and show that it's possible to, say, protect clean air while also, you know, having new industries come into the state and promoting, you know, growing jobs and growing the economy and everything. If states show that that's possible and continue to show that that's possible, then other states will follow, regardless of what the president or the administration says. So Colorado's been a big leader in this. We were one of the first states to have a voter-approved renewable energy standard back in 2007. Um, voters said, yes, we want more renewable energy. We set a goal of having 30% of our energy come from renewables by a certain year. I think it was 2025. <laughs> And, you know, we're, because of that, we're really on track to decreasing the amount of 
um, coal that we rely on and incre increasing renewables, and we've had tons of job growth. Like the solar industry grew by 20% last year. There's tons of wind jobs coming into the state. Like it's really becoming a big positive for Colorado. So I think because of that, we can show like the rest of the nation, if you increase, if you have these certain policies in place, you can increase jobs, you can bring more people, companies and businesses to the state. Like it's a really good thing. So hopefully Colorado can continue to lead in that regard and other states will continue to do so too because that's kind of our only hope right now for the country, I think. Yeah. What other states are leading the way against mm -hmm. climate change and for more prudent environmental policies? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, obviously California is doing a lot more than most of the country. Um, my knowledge really is <laughs> limited in some regard to knowing mostly what Colorado does, but um, there have been some really effective efforts across the country um, I know New England had something like a carbon tax, I believe, that really helped boost the economy and also reduce carbon emissions over a several state region. So there's a lot of really cool proactive environmental policies happening around the country, and I think Colorado continues needs to continue doing stuff like that to stay competitive. Do you think that the burden should be on the states to tax carbon? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I mean, I know, I think, I think a carbon tax failed in Washington, right? They, yeah, it did. They, didn't, they didn't pass, mm -hmm. uh, and I think the Sierra Club came out against it, right? Why, why mm -hmm. was that? Why did they... Actually, I do know a lot about that because Washington is my home state. Okay, yeah. Um, and yeah, the carbon tax in Washington had, it was going to, I think, just send the money that was made from the tax back to a general fund, and the environmentalists, a lot of environmental groups in Washington wanted that tax to go directly towards investing in renewable energy and like not just go to the state's general fund. They wanted that tax to be like taxing carbon to promote renewables and that's it. So they were kind of drawing a hard line saying like, we'll only approve a tax if it does this certain thing. And because that tax didn't do that, they rejected it and the state ended up not passing it, which was a big bummer for Washington because uh, now it'll be kind of difficult to get a carbon tax passed there. Um, because that one failed at the ballot. However, that doesn't mean that it's not possible, and I think the question of where the burden should fall is a really good question, and it's something to think about. Conservation Colorado doesn't have a specific opinion on that. Um, you know, we, we want to make change in the most effective, best way possible, and right now, that's looking like it's going to be on the states because of the administration that we've just elected for the next four years. But, uh, you know, whether it should be the states, that's kind of a bigger question that I don't think I'm qualified to uh, answer. Yeah, I just meant, do you think that it works on an individual mm -hmm. state basis? Are there states that have carbon taxes right now? Yeah, I think California might. <laughs> um, I thought they had a cap. Like a it's cap a cap and trade, trade that's yeah. what it is. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, obviously that's that's making a lot of industries kind of cater to that certain standard because they want to be able to sell their stuff in California. So it is really cool that, you know, a big state like California can have that kind of influence and Colorado's a big state too. And, you know, if more states get on board with that kind of thing, then we can definitely make really meaningful change. You know, it's not the same level as having a federal policy, but we're pretty far from that at, that, at this point, I think. So you mentioned in 2007 that mm -hmm. voters approved a ballot measure to allow for more renewable energy. 
is that still a trend that Colorado's on? Do voters still favor environmentally sound policies? Yeah. As it turns out, there's a poll that comes out every year called the State of the Rockies poll, where they poll a bunch of Western voters on different issues, and Colorado's always a part of that poll. Um, and it really strongly every year shows that Coloradans across uh, parties really do care about conservation issues. Um, I wonder, I don't have any of the stats with me right now. <laughs> but I've probably memorized some of them. Uh, let's see, from last year's poll, I think it, they, one of the questions was, would you rather, like on water, for example, would you rather build more big diversions to push water over the mountains for the front range or conserve more water, you know, in your personal life. And something like 82% of Coloradans said they'd rather conserve water than build big new projects. Same with public lands. One of the polls asked, I think from 2015, have you visited public lands in the last year? And 94% of Coloradans said that they had. So there's really strong numbers on all of these issues that we work on that show that Coloradans really do care about these things across the parties. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever. Most Coloradans really care about clean air. They want to see investments in clean energy. They want our water to be health, our rivers to be healthy and flowing. Um, they want our public lands to remain public and accessible for all sorts of activities. So, yeah, there really is support in Colorado for these issues. So you mentioned that you have an office in mm -hmm. Grand Junction, right? Yep. So I have family there, nice. and one of the things they—they're Democrats, but they talk about how it, it's very Republican and they in large part voted for Trump because they said they were going to bring back mining, expand natural gas. What does a group like Conservation Colorado do to reach out to people that have an economic interest in seeing the degradation of the environment? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. Uh, we've started in the past couple of years working out direct, working with coal communities, communities that historically have relied on coal, um, like in Grand Junction and a lot of Western Colorado, you know, we don't, we don't want to be a group that, that only advocates for renewable energy at whatever human cost. We're advocating for people and communities and, you know, human health and uh, clean air and clean water and those type of things that really benefit everyone. So we also don't want a bunch of people to lose jobs because of what we're advocating for. So what we've started doing is working pretty closely with stakeholders and people in the coal-reliant communities um, to try to figure out how we can move forward towards a renewable energy future that doesn't just put a bunch of people out of work. Um, and that means we're making really thoughtful decisions on those types of policies we pursue. You know, we're not going to say, we're not just going to blindly say anything that cuts emissions is good. We're going to say something that cuts carbon emissions, but also helps create jobs in an area that might be affected by this policy. Like that's the kind of policy we're going to promote. And we're always going to be thinking about that. We're always going to be working really carefully to make sure that we're hearing the dissent and we're hearing what other people have to say and considering that in whatever changes we try to pursue. So that's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about next, yeah. which is, I feel like, and, and I think it was uh, Ezra Klein from Vox who said this recently, that climate change in the environment is one of the hardest issues to lobby for because mm -hmm. the harms are long-term and they're not palpable in the moment. And it makes it very difficult to show people 
the, I, I think that the pushback on climate change has been in large part just on a factual basis because you have to take a lot of steps in the argument to get to your argument mm -hmm. about climate change. Um, so I know people that are climate skeptics and I, I don't really know how to interact with them. I don't know how to tell them that an overwhelming number of scientists support this claim, that this well-documented theory. So what do you guys do to reach out to people that just don't seem to be accepting facts when there's mm -hmm. really a lot of them? Mm-hmm. That's tough. It's, uh, encouragingly, <laughs> um, recent studies have shown that more and more Americans are starting to realize that climate change is real, that this is really happening, this is really something we have to deal with. But there's always going to be those who try to deny it or try to spin the facts or cherry pick data and make it look like, you know, this is just natural variation or this is something that's not caused by humans. Um, yeah, it can be really hard to, when someone is so set in their ways and set in their opinions, it can be really hard to sway them. I think at, at Conservation Colorado, what we try to do is always present the facts, always be honest, always cite truthful sources, never exaggerate, those type of things to make sure that we're establishing ourselves as a trustworthy voice and that, you know, that uh, everything we say can be taken for fact. Um, I'm trying to think how to even really address that. It's, it's a really hard question. A lot of something that I think or part of the reason that I think more people are starting to realize that climate change is real, because the trends definitely show like more and more people every year are realizing it. Uh, I think it's seeing the impacts happening in daily life. Like there was a wildfire last month in Colorado. That's really unusual to have one this early in the year. And you know, if you look at wildfire data, for example, you'll see that it really has gone up in the past couple of decades. So that's something that you could point to and say, you know, this isn't some crazy scientist out there. This is these are things that actually really happened. And, you know, if someone doesn't believe in ice core data for some reason, then maybe they can believe the data they see in their backyard, that there's more trees burning and that it's more of a problem. Um, and I think similarly, like hotter temperatures, we'll start to see more droughts. You know, it's those kind of really concrete things that people tend to believe. Um, and I think just, you know, continuing to tell the truth and use really good sources and make sure that those sources are complete, that everything is cited, that, um, you know, all of, all of, if you're trying to argue with someone about what is true and what is not, just making sure that every argument that you make is really, really based in fact, um, eventually, I don't know, I hope <laughs> they'll have to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So one argument that I heard really a lot back in like 2015 when mm -hmm. the Paris climate agreement was happening was that if the world heats up more than two degrees Celsius, that it, it, I, I wasn't following the news super carefully, but the headlines made it seem like the world was going to end. And I want to know, do, do you at Conservation Colorado think that that's an effective strategy at getting people motivated about climate change? Mm -hmm. Because to me, when I believe in climate change and I, <laughs> and I think that it's a huge problem and yeah. I try and do my part to help the environment, but I, I feel like uh, this environmental fatalism isn't mm -hmm. very helpful 
Would you agree? I would. Yeah, and I've read I've read something recently about that that was saying because it's far in the future, it's negative, and you can't really see it happening yet, or many people can't realize that it's happening yet. It's one of the hardest things to convince people of. And that's you know that's going to be an ongoing issue and an ongoing challenge because that's the whole deal. Like once we've past two degrees Celsius of warming worldwide, like it's kind of too late <laughs> to really fix the damage that humans have incurred. So yeah, it's pretty tough to communicate without being really fatalistic and destructive. And we actually try not to do that because, you know, you don't always want to be depressing people when, you know, in reality it's kind of dark. Like we don't really yeah, know yeah, what know. the future's going to look like. And sometimes personally, you know, just on my own terms, I can get sad about thinking about these things too much. Um, but I think the the pivot is like we can you know we can talk about this sad future or we can talk about how we're going to make it better and how human technology like our technology has already advanced so much we're able to do so much we really could rely all on renewable energy sources right now if we switched over like we have that capability so you know if we keep fighting for it if we keep developing technologies we can maybe avoid this thing I don't, you know there's a hopeful. A hopeful side to it as well and we've made a lot of progress um, in the past decade I think you know there's much more buy-in to these type of things than there was 10 years ago even so it's really cool to see that and see the public become more aware of it um, yeah it doesn't it's not usually the most effective method to be like well in 20 years it's gonna be terrible because people tend to not be able to conceptualize that well and um, yeah it's it's a tough message to sell but it's you know, I certainly believe it's one of the most important things we can be working on and fighting for right now. So let's say I, I'm not a climate skeptic, mm -hmm. but I don't necessarily agree with a lot of environmental policies. Give me like a 30 second pitch as to why I should be working harder in my own life mm -hmm. to be more environmentally cautious. I'll give you a second because I kind of put you on the spot here, sorry. <laughs> That's like a challenge. Um, well, there's a whole project called Risky Business, which if I was really going to convince you, I'd just tell you to look them up right now. But uh, they do economic analysis on the impacts of climate change. So really, not only is it that the burning fossil fuels and the emissions that we're consuming right now, that we're making right now, um, are polluting our air, are causing more health impacts and damaging people's uh, respiratory systems. Like not only is all of that happening, but at the same time, we're kind of digging ourselves into a hole economically speaking. And you can really look at very solid economic predictions by tons of different groups that show if we don't act on climate change today and if we don't invest in making proactive decisions right now that will Im impact our health, that will impact our air quality, that will impact our climate in the future, then we're really digging ourselves into a hole and the amount of investment today that would be required to avoid a bad future is way, way, way less, like, you know, hundredfold, <laughs> like a tiny, tiny fraction of how much we'll have to pay in the future if we don't examine this and if we don't acknowledge it right now. So it's pretty urgent to do something now and to act as quickly as we can to avoid environmental damage because otherwise we will have to deal with it. We're not going to move to another planet in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years, in the next 30 years. Some would argue differently, but realistically our entire species has this earth right now and 
these resources to sustain us and we can't change that so we need to protect it and it's not only the uh, health argument it's not only the protect our beautiful environment argument it's really protect our economy protect our infrastructure protect our society so uh, last week or whatever when trump mm -hmm. came out with his environmental uh executive orders there was a lot of editorial pieces in like the wall street journal and the new york times about how like coal's not coming back and obviously it's not but i, I sort of felt like that missed the point a little bit like mm. we don't want coal to come back but it did show that people seemed a little bit more optimistic about the market forces which were at play mm. in terms of climate change how optimistic are you mm -hmm. that we can make the change fast enough to avoid, I don't want to say severe consequences because we're already pretty screwed, but <laughs> yeah. like like mm -hmm. worldwide catastrophe. Mm -hmm. I think on a daily basis, I have to be optimistic. It is, you know, it's what I do at Conservation Colorado, um, and it it means a lot to me to be doing this work. And if I really didn't think we were having an impact, I probably wouldn't spend all day every day doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, as I mentioned before, at any, you know, everyone can get sad for a time, but, uh, yeah, at this point, like, I've read a lot of things that say, regardless of what President Trump does and what his administration does, that renewables, wind and solar, their prices have been going down over the years, and natural gas is already way cheaper than coal, so it's very likely that we won't be building a bunch of new coal-fired power plants, and that coal is going to continue the decline that it's been on. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. Uh, natural gas obviously has been rising. A lot of people used to say that's a great transition fuel, like let's do it, you know, as we transition away from coal. Now it's starting to appear more and more environmentalists are turning away from that message and saying, all right, we're done transitioning. We need to, we need to jump over the renewables now before we get too reliable, reliant on natural gas. Because um, it, it does, you know, release a lot less um, greenhouse gases than coal does, but it's still producing emissions, it's still burning up a non-renewable resource, um, and it's just not as sustainable as using something like wind and solar that's always going to be available. So I think we'll continue to have to work with that industry and figure out how we can move forward. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how the market forces will play out, I'm no economist here, but I am hopeful that you know enough people now there's a there's a strong enough consensus amongst the american people that understands we can't just go backwards in time we have to keep moving forward and i think there's a strong enough consensus that people understand like renewable energy wind solar maybe even nuclear maybe other options those are what's going to really take us into the future so what do you at conservation colorado think about fracking in general mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to remember our uh, pitch State here. Position. Okay, yes. you, can, you don't have to answer for your organization. You can also answer for yourself. Yeah. If, like, what's yeah. your inclination? Well, so for our organization, for Conservation Colorado, we understand that oil and gas drilling has to happen, and it's already happening in our, in our state. Um, and what we've really been advo advocating for, for state policy, is to try to make sure that it happens in a way that is safe, that doesn't impact our environment that too much, and that protects human health. So, for example, right now we're actually working on a bill that would, right now, oil and gas has to be a thousand feet away, operations have to be a thousand feet away from a high occupancy building, 
like a hospital or a school. But we're trying to change that because it doesn't have to be a thousand feet from the, the school property, just the school building. So in terms of schools specifically, that means that a playground could be 300 feet from an oil and gas well, where well the building is really a thousand feet away because the, you know how school yeah, properties yeah. are like that. So and there are a couple cases right now of schools that have oil and gas wells 500, 600 feet away from them. Um, and not only is that a public health issue because while the impacts are still kind of disputed on exactly how oil and gas can affect health, people know that it's not really great for you. And especially young children, like breathing in uh, volatile organic compounds and being right close to all that stuff, it's not great. And at the same time, um, those operations can sometimes have accidents and sometimes explosions. And those kind of things don't stay within a thousand feet, they go all over. So that's one of the things we're trying to advocate for is to get oil and gas further away from schools. And that's just something we're working on right now. Um, but yeah, in a general sense, Conservation Colorado is happy to work with the oil and gas industry and with um, supporters of that industry to try to figure out how we can do it safely, how we can protect people, and how we can protect our public lands that are really fragile for habitat or whatever. Um, I think personally, I'm a little bit stronger <laughs> towards totally not related to the organization where I work, just me, Audrey Wheeler. Uh, personally, I'm a lot more towards the side of let's just move on to renewable energy uh, and do as little fracking as we can. But I, I am starting to understand from working here that you know you can't you can't always be the farthest you know left person. Compromising really is the best way to move forward. So do you do you guys work with uh, like conservative groups? I'm trying to think of mm. the lobbying group that has those terrible like energy voter ads <laughs> but do you guys work with like can, like the like with mm -hmm. oil and gas lobbyists as well to like try and get legislation passed and stuff mm -hmm. yeah we do we do a lot of coalitions a lot of working with other people i think two years ago we were on a like, colorado oil and gas advisory group um so yeah we really do try to communicate with other sides of the debate and make sure that we're hearing them and that we're paying attention to all of those things. So what can like young people or just people in general mm -hmm. do to have the biggest impact? Like, or I guess I'll, I'll rephrase the question. What do you do in your life to be more environmentally friendly? <laughs> Personally, I'm a budding hippie. Um, I eat vegetarian and mostly vegan food because I've noticed and read a lot of books about how this is totally not related to the organization. This is just me. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was a personal question. Yeah, yeah. yeah personal question. Um, yeah, vegetarian because eating meat generally is worse for the environment than eating a vegetarian or vegan diet just because of the land use and the pollution um, and the emissions from factory farming and from the way that farming's done in our country today. So that's one thing. Um, I bike everywhere. I bike to work every day. I try not to drive, really. I recycle and compost all of my stuff. Um, try really hard to reduce my kind of footprint in all of those ways. You know, turning off the lights, showering for short amounts of time, all those type of things. There's a lot, you know, just in your daily life that you can do to reduce your own personal impact. So I try to do all that stuff. And then if you were like a high schooler who <laughs> wasn't sure how to get involved in the environmental movement mm -hmm. in Colorado, besides coming to 
Conservation Colorado, what should you do to affect change? Mm -hmm. That is a really great question. And I think it, I think, you know, in this day and age, a lot of people are asking themselves that. And I've been asking myself that even though I already work at an environmental nonprofit, I really, you know, I want to get more involved and I want to really be able to be a part of political decisions because I'm learning more and more that they really do impact daily life. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, and I think it's really important to, so I'd say, first of all, find your issues. <laughs> there's so much going on. There's so much out there um, that it can be, you'll feel kind of overwhelming to be super informed on every single issue that you care about. So for me, what I've kind of done to deal with that is, you know, pick a couple of major things that I care about, like the environment, um, that I'm, you know, I'm going to read up on it. I'm going to pay really close attention to what's moving. I'm going to always be in, be in the loop and make sure that I'm informed about what's happening. So I think that's one really good step because once you're informed and, you know, and that includes like reading really good uh, materials, finding good articles, finding fact-based <laughs> reporting, like not buying into the fake news empires that kind of have overwhelmed us. Um, I think once, once you inform yourself about the issues you care about, then you're better off, um, you're better able to share that with other people. And so especially for young people, like in high school, you know, I think it can be easy to get wrapped up in your own world and uh, for everyone too. Like it's easy to kind of forget about the broader policy things that are going on and just kind of be on your own uh, trajectory. But once you start reading a lot of things about issues that you care about and learning about what's going on, then it's better you're able to share with people around you more. So I think that's the next step is like learn, share with people around you, tell people what you've learned, get their opinions, you know, point out good articles, share good articles on social media, like make sure that you're contributing to that kind of discussion. And then from there you can um, obviously volunteer with organizations, you can volunteer with Conservation Colorado. We love having people come testify if they feel really strongly about a bill at the Capitol or write a letter to your decision maker, make a call or something like that. Um, that stuff, even though it can feel repetitive if you do it over and over, you're kind of like, oh, are they even listening? The truth is they are. Um, even if they're just taking notes on the number of people that have called that day, if there's like hundreds more that called in favor of something than against something, they're going to notice that and they're going to pay attention. So it's always important to you know, follow policies, follow what's happening, and get involved in that way. Um, and then at the same time, you can get involved in non-political side of things too. Like, you know, sometimes if that gets overwhelming, it's, you know, you can volunteer um, for local groups, just doing good work on the ground and trying to help in a small way, uh, wh whether that, you know, whatever issue it is, whether that's planting trees or whether that's visiting a hospital or whatever it is, um, there's, you can really make a big difference just using your own time for, for good and for issues that you care about. Awesome, thanks. So. <laughs> This is a question that I ask everybody mm -hmm. that I interview. What are you reading right now? Hmm. Right now I'm reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck. It's a novel that my friend gave me, and it's beautifully written, but really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been trying to read that, but it's, sometimes it gets sad, so I have to take a break. All right, yeah. Thank you so much. Cool, thank you.